This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I visit with a prolific editorial cartoonist whose work has been syndicated nationwide in over 850 newspapers. He has appeared in the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, USA Today, and the Washington Post. His cartoons are often featured in the best editorial cartoons of the year. He's the author of the memoir Inklings and the lead singer and guitarist for the band The Prairie Cats. Coming up is my discussion with clever cartoonist and all-around arts enthusiast, Jeffrey Katerba. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Thank you, Pat. Thank you. I'm intrigued by many things, especially because you work in visual art, you work in audio with music. In general, you've made a, a life in the creative arts, somewhat making your own jobs as you go. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see it as a continuum. Uh, it's all weirdly connected. People will yeah, ask me, well, you're doing this one thing, the cartooning thing, uh, but how is it you do something totally different? But again, I see it all in a connected way. I realize that sometimes our society or culture or the business, quote unquote, doesn't appreciate when you do all sorts of different things. And there have been those who've said, hey, Jeff, just focus on that one thing and do it really well. But first of all, I can't help myself. I am interested in all these different things. And I want to think that maybe I can <laughs> do each thing really well. The common denominator is the most interesting to me, because if there's a Venn diagram, creativity is in the center of that. And music is the audio part of your life and the cartoons are the visual part, but even the humor and various topics you're covering in editorial is a little bit more cerebral. You can't not observe the world. And then the question is, how do you express yourself? What method do you choose today to have that come out of you? Exactly. And I'm, I might also say that even weirdly for me, the editorial cartoons are sensory on all the different levels. For example, when I'm writing dialogue in a cartoon, I'm speaking that out. Or if I'm drawing a politician, I'm hearing their voice and I'm sensing what the scene is, the physicality of it, what it smells like there. And those, all those sensory things are activated in the same way that when I'm writing a song uh, about a particular place and time, I'm putting myself in that place. Back to your point, the, ed the editorial cartoons in particular, probably a little bit more cerebral. That has to do with, I'm wanting to make a point about something that's topical, that's in the news. And I'm also trying to do it in a way that isn't being done by other editorial cartoonists. Politically, I think of myself as a passionate centrist. I don't think of myself as an ideologue. I do know cartoonists, very good friends of mine who are really one side to the other, and that's fine. I love a good conversation from all the spectrums, but I like to think that the truth isn't always over here or over there. 
And sometimes it's a combination of those things. Sometimes it's a totally third or fourth different way. And so I'm looking at ideas and topics from that point of view. And the cartoon is the vehicle to get that idea across. So it's serving the idea as a journalist, first and foremost, if that makes any sense. <laughs> no, it makes a lot of sense. I was going to ask the question, the difference between a cartoon and a comic. In the comics, it feels slightly different and cartoon feels more journalistic to me. It, oh, that's a great point, Pat. And, and it, it is hard. Sometimes people don't think about the differences, but you're right. A, a comic strip that you're going to see in the newspaper or a, a one panel cartoon you might see in the New Yorker, although those sometimes have a little bit more social cultural commentary, but a comic strip is there mostly to get a laugh. And that's great. And I appreciate those things. And we need humor in our daily lives, especially with the world as it is. But for me, uh, the end point of an editorial cartoon isn't the joke. It's, again, part of the vehicle to get us there, to make the point. And I want to entertain, but I also want to make a point. And um, I just want to get people to think about things in a different way. And if I can use humor to do that, great. But not every editorial cartoon is meant to be funny. And especially if, it's, if I'm drawing about something serious, I will take a step back and try to do something a little bit more thoughtful or poignant which sometimes readers, they just think, oh, well, that's a cartoon. Why is he making fun of, fun of this tragedy? But I'm not. I'm doing something, I hope, more thoughtfully just to resonate. I think about many times things that a space shuttle explosion, uh, various things along the way yep. that you led with heart and grace and dignity in the choice. Obviously, there's not something to make fun of there, but that's the forum for dialogue. You're actually opening the door to have people start a dialogue in their head versus the idea of it ending with the laugh. Exactly. It's interesting. You, you mentioned the Challenger. I was still a freelancer trying to get my foot in the door at the, the local newspaper where I was for over 31 years until corporate cutbacks, is which that's happening at newspapers everywhere, especially, I mean, with staffers, but editorial cartoonists, there are very, very few full-time newspaper cartoonists on staff. I might've been uh, one of 20 left in the country when I lost my job there, but I was still trying to break in full time. And it was actually the Challenger explosion that led to my first published cartoon in the local newspaper. And then it would be many years later that I would actually have two of my original cartoons fly on uh, Space Shuttle Discovery. So kind of a interesting full circle thing there. Space has also been a theme. When I hired you for the Children's Museum 45th anniversary uh, celebration, uh, you chose a space theme there of a parent lifting up a child towards the moon to show this expansive idea of imagination. And I think just in general, you always had a fascination with space, didn't you? I, I have, mainly for two reasons. The first one, my uncle, Ed Katerba was a syndicated columnist for Scripps Howard, Washington Post. And I never had a chance to meet him. He was uh, killed in a uh, plane crash about a month after I was born. But I grew up hearing all of these stories about his world travels as a journalist. And his writing was so good. He was a political commentator, but in that Walter Cronkite sort of way, you really never knew what his political positions were in a good way. He was very humane and kind in, in his writing. But he interviewed people like Werner von Braun, the father of the Saturn V rocket, and he covered the early days of the NASA program. He was part of those early Kennedy press corps meetings. So I heard all these stories about him. 
and his interest in the space program. And my dad, when I was growing up, when there was an Apollo launch back in the day, he was a part-time TV repairman and had all of these broken TVs in various states of disrepair in the house. And on those days when there would be an Apollo launch, he would not only call me in sick to school, he would call in sick to work and we'd stay home and we had our own little newsroom with all the stacks of TVs watching the Apollo launches. So I became enamored with the space program from a very early age. And whenever I have a chance to draw on space, I'll, I'll certainly do that. Now, how did the cartoon end up on the discovery? What was the invitation or impetus for that to go outside the world as it were? There's an astronaut from Nebraska, Clayton Anderson, and I had drawn an editorial cartoon about him on the International Space Station. And this was 2007 or so. I didn't know that this cartoon that I had drawn about him was beamed to the space station, which now may not seem like a high feat of technology, but 2007, not all that long ago, but it was still like really unusual, at least for something like that to happen to me. Well, I didn't know that was happening. So one morning I get a, a, an email and the subject line says something like, uh, greetings, earthling. And I thought it was spam, Pat, and I truly almost deleted it. And to this day, I catch my breath thinking that I could have deleted that email because I got a lot of spam at the newspaper. So I, I opened the email and it's from Clayton Anderson, whom I'd never met. And he says, hey, uh, earthling, I'm flying above you at this moment, 200 miles above you. And I've just looked at your cartoon. It's great. And that just knocked my socks off. So we became uh, friends through that. And, and a few years later, he was going back up into space on the Discovery, invited my family and I to, to his launch. And he said, hey, I just have one request. Can you draw a couple of original cartoons that I can take on board? Yes. Yes, I can. <laughs> oh, that is beautiful. I love it. That's what's interesting about being in the creative arts is you don't ever know what kind of invitation is going to arise because you interface with so many different parts of the culture. Uh, even though you may work at your own desk, that when people become a fan or when they become curious or when they suddenly have a need for an illustration, you find yourself in the middle of a corporate fundraiser. We're working in isolation for the most part. I mean, granted, when you're out on stage performing, you're in front of people. And when I'm performing in front of people with my band, that there's a different kind of interaction. But when you're writing, I, I don't know about you, Pat, I have to have complete quiet. I can't take distractions. And you never know, like you're doing it in isolation. You think, is anybody even going to read this? And then you meet someone out of the blue. I'll meet a reader who says, hey, your cartoon, they're now middle age, I'll say, hey, when I was younger, my parents would read your cartoons to me. And I think, well, first of all, I'm not that old, but, and we had your cartoon on our refrigerator for years. So hey, was there anything like that for you, Pat, that out of the blue, something so random, you wouldn't have guessed? There are many times that I'm surprised. I moderated a conversation at the Austin Film Festival. Then I end up at the barbecue and I see Lawrence Kasdan and I think, oh man, I'd love to talk to him. And he's walking right at me and he goes, hey man, he wanted to talk to me based on my having a conversation with somebody else that he overheard. And my mind was completely blown that he could care less. But those kinds of very interesting things happen, I think, in proximity of the arts because we do often work alone. Even as a stand-up comic, you walk out on stage, you get to talk to the audience as a forum. A well, one-man show is the loneliest cast party 
of all time every <laughs> night. Right? It doesn't mean that it's, it isn't interesting to be out there, but I don't have bandmates. So I am often treated to a note or something that comes many years after the fact that somebody saw an appearance on television in England that based some new variety act on something. I, I found out 25 years later that some young magician used a premise or principle that I devised into something that's new and I can't even figure out. So it is really interesting how in some ways we're seeding the universe mm -hmm. with our ideas and how they harvest and where they come from. I watched a lot of Carol Burnett show <laughs> with my parents and laughed at the mistakes that Harvey Corman and yeah. Tim Conway made. I thought that was the funniest thing in the world. Well, when I wrote my first play, Bunk Bed Brothers, I thought, hey, we should have the essence of that in the show. We should have that spontaneity and that possibility of things going wrong because I wanted it. And we scripted it, but the audience never knew and the critics never knew. If they wrote a, a review that said they're lucky they had such a talented cast because there were so many technical mistakes, we thought that was the greatest thing. We wanted the record player not to work. So we had to be good enough to fool them every night that the ripped wallpaper was uh, a legitimate accident on stage. Do you think the Harvey Corman thing was all uh, actually accidental or do you think it was, was somewhat staged? Oh, no, I don't think it was staged at all. I think that particularly Tim Conway was messing with them and they were trying to keep a straight face. It was ostensibly a little bit more live anyway, and they turned their back to the camera to try to keep a straight face. And you'll see that occasionally on Sound Out Live now. But on that show, they're not trying to get to each other. And I think on Carol Burnett, it's evident that Tim Conway did something different in the performance than he did in the rehearsal. And they were pros, but the spirit of it to me in absolutely shows up in my work. I, I love that, Pat. I love the spirit of that. And I think there's something lost a little bit when everything is overly scripted. I think about a lot of late night talk shows where there, there are all these pre-interviews. I don't know how much Johnny Carson did that back in the day, old school, but it just felt like there was more of an immediacy or a freshness to some of those interviews back then and more things could go wrong. Back to your earlier point about how the impact you might have on someone. And I think that, that this is true for anyone doing anything creative, whether you have a large platform or not. I hear from a lot of creatives in general who say, well, I'm on Instagram and that's really the only platform I have right now. And I don't have a lot of followers or I'm doing a, a little reading at a cafe and I only had eight people. But the thing is, you don't know the impact that you're having you don't know what difficult thing that someone in the audience is going through out of those eight people. And if you have quality work and you're touching people's lives and their hearts, you don't need to have hundreds and thousands. Sure, is it great? But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're always connecting with people. And if you just have those quality moments with your audience, no matter how small or big it is. And I can think about that in terms of performances with my band. We played some big shows, played South by Southwest, played the Derby in LA, and those are awesome. It really awesome to think about. And I have great memories of it, but I can equally think about some dive bar where maybe there are 35 people there and it might be one of the best shows that we ever played. And the people there appreciated it and it was heartfelt and they mentioned it years later. Yeah. And it's truthfully to sort of reinforce this fact, the result is not always in 
the quantity. It's not in the volume of people who see it. It is oftentimes a one-to-one where in that audience of 10 or 15 people, the one person that's the decision maker of the next thing or the person that becomes your champion is that person. I've always called it big game fishing. I'm only interested in getting the one big fish. I don't care to bring in 20 eight-inch speckled trout. I want to bring in a marlin in my business. So my little play, the little engine that could, I was doing it in a 50-seat theater in the middle of LA. And I put that mentality, and it wasn't about sell out. It was about, can I get the guy from TriStar Columbia to see this show? Can I get HBO's comedy development person to come? Can I get Brandon Tartikoff or Warren Littlefield from NBC to come and be in the audience. So I just all along, I guess I always tried to make people aware where I was appearing. Technology and social media and all of those things have democratized distribution. Mm -hmm. Your thing can be on YouTube today, and it is the world's greatest situation for discovery, but also it's there forever. And so if you're doing crappy work up there, and they Google your name, your crappy works out there forever. I think people are very clever. Instagram is a great way to look at an artist's portfolio. Just all of the work they want to show off, click, 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 click. You can see it. It's not like you have to carry a satchel and go door to door or go to a meeting. And that is a big breakthrough. It is. But also, to your point, you you do have to produce quality work, of course. And I, I want to believe that Generally speaking, quality work is going to rise to the surface. And it's great that we have all these new platforms. But on the other hand, because we have all these (laughs) platforms and the ease of putting whatever on YouTube or Instagram, well, there's going to be a lot of things that just aren't great. That's just, for me, one more reason to encourage creatives to do your best work and to do what you did, for example, is having that theater production, hoping to get the right people there, that you're showing up, you're doing the work. And I think that is the most important thing. You have to show up. You have to have great ideas. You have to be open to criticism, constructive criticism, ideas, refresh. But it's in those stages when you can really work out problems. And all that applies to me, no matter what you're doing. You're starting a food truck, you're writing a play, but showing up and doing the work. And I want to ask you, Pat, when you start out on a new project, Do you always think of what that end goal is? Uh, This is my end goal for this particular project. Or do you kind of get into it? And what's your process for that? I'm very much a maker mentality, which is Mm -hmm. see it to the end. Imagine it in its best scenario. But the form is very important. And I often say to people, what is this going to be? So if it's going to be a sitcom, it's going to be a certain length or it's going to have certain locations or characters. Is this going to be a screenplay? That's different. That's one story told one time that comes to a conclusion versus a series that might be ongoing things for characters. Is this going to be in print? Is it going to be written? Is it going to be performed? Is it for a performer to do or is it for a reader to read? Because you work words a little differently. So the easiest way is to talk about how water takes the form of the container that you pour it in. So if you have a mug, it's going to be shaped like a mug in the end. If it's a vase, it's going to be shaped like a vase. So if you pick the form first, you may or may not be right. You may find that it might work better a different way. But essentially when I'm developing it, I am developing it in a form, in a play form, in a one-man show, in a commentary, in a monologue. And those each have a different intent. 
that's like the number one thing I do. And then I always believe it's going to come to life because people tell you constantly, you're out of your mind or you can't, well, you don't know how to write a movie. You've never written a song because they're deathly afraid of doing something like that. But I think that you do it, you fall down, you pick up, you learn something, you make it 10% better. I do it for an audience. I like to be the audience as I'm writing it because I like to entertain myself, but I'm not trying to do what the world wants. I'm just saying, here's my sense of humor. I'm, I hope there's other people that would tune into this channel right, that, right. You know, that I'm on right now. And I don't see myself as somebody changing the world or anything else. I just like, oh, here's an original observation. Here's a different way to look at it. Here's a quirky thing that's been in my mind that I need to get out of my body. Right now, it's a, a musical called Grounded for Life. And really, the impetus of that was that I rode my bike as a kid, always contemplating what those words meant. I heard somebody was grounded for life, and I thought, how is that possible? At 16, you can drive, you run away. At 18 or 21, you beat your dad up. You can't ground a person for life. But anyway, it was so absurd that it became the premise for what is now a guy stuck in his childhood bedroom at 35 years old. And it's like Hogan's heroes. All of his friends enter and leave through a toy box to make, to figure out why this guy is a ward of the state. It's absurd, but really the truth is the farce is there to cover up for a deeper thing, which is what is it like to be stuck in a job? What is it like to be stuck in a marriage? What is it like to be in a thing where you ground yourself and you're the warden of your own prison because of your fear or crippling sense of change. And so hopefully through the lightness, people can reflect what's holding them back. And I think you're probably a good one because of your uh, creativity coaching to give us a little bit of advice about what you share with clients or folks about that big block of how excuses can get in the way of actually getting things done. Yeah, well, I mean, you've you've touched on so much of that. I love the premise. It's a musical, you said? It is a musical, which again, people would laugh. That's not my wheelhouse, but I have a partner that's a amazing New York conductor and Broadway piano player, and he's guided me through so many things. That's how you get there is you find collaborators. You, you find collaborators, you, or you just do it? I mean, what? why not? And, you know, I love that you've taken a phrase that is common and you've turned it on its head, grounded for life. And then yet it becomes this analogy for something much deeper that a lot of us can relate to. That character who's dealing with his or her own fears. And you said it earlier, the people who might come to you and say, that's crazy. Well, why do you think that is? I asked that my, of myself too. When come, people come to me and they say, well, I am of a certain age and I always wanted to learn to play the piano or the guitar or to take a painting. Well, the easy first question is like, well, why not? Like, what is stopping you? You're not saying I'm 63 and I'm going to become a professional football player. That might be, although Pat, I will tell you, I have had these thoughts and it's, oh man, am I not, am not even like, I like football. I enjoy it, I, but I've never, you know, had like this driving dream to become a professional football player. But yet I think I've maintained, maybe because I'm a cartoonist, I maintain this childlike wonderment or something. And I 
have to remind myself, okay, maybe I can't become a professional football player, but I can still do all these other things. But didn't George Blanda play until he was in his 50s George or something? George Blanda, absolutely. But <laughs> my dad was not physically fit or anything, and he would always be watching saying, I could do that. And we're like, no, dad, you can't do 10 push-ups. And he would always reference George Blanda moving and then becoming a kicker and staying in the game. There's a show I'm producing right now called The Never Too Late Show with an amazing storyteller named Don Reed. And Don actually really presses that point you're making right now, that it's really never too late to pick up that creative art. You don't have to become the world's greatest banjo player to want to do it and express yourself that way. But I think what holds most people back is the notion all around us, play gets taken out of our life from academia. And I'm not down on it. I just feel like they don't encourage the creative arts in the same way because they think you can't make a living at it or that it's a crazy risk. And I mean, look at all the peers I have and, and this show it emulates it all across the board, which is I'm talking to a guy that makes dinosaurs for history music. It's like, how do these people get this job? They just have a passion. They won't stop. They lose sleep over it. And ultimately, it is that love of it that keeps them in that childhood sense of wonder. The head of Pixar says play is very important about how they make movies. All of these people are saying keep that sense of wonder in your life or whimsy. And I think it affects attitude and impacts people around you in, in every way. We're all artists as kids, it's hard for me to think of any kid that didn't do a little scribbling using markers or crayons and whether we're all going to become quote unquote artists as in someone who paints or draws cartoons or whatever. Well, no, but that childlike sense of wonderment that we all have instinctively. And then we're told that it's not a way to make a living or a lot of schools no longer have full-time art programs. It's just not encouraged. And that's heartbreaking. I, I say to parents, whether your child ends up doing art as a career or not, is kind of beside the point. It enriches one's life to play music or to make art or to create. It's enriching, whether you make a living at it or not. And to those who say that I have this dream to do something, but I haven't done it yet, then I will always come back to them and I'll say, what is your why? What is calling out to you? Well, I want to play piano. Well, why? Because I always wanted to play music, but why do you want to play music? And then once you start digging deeper and you find out that maybe they always wanted to do it, maybe they started playing music as a child and were never able to continue. And this has been a dream of theirs, or they want to touch the lives of others. Maybe they just want to volunteer at a nursing home playing piano for someone. Maybe they want to go out on the street corner with a guitar and they just want to see smiling faces Maybe they want to write music and perform. Getting to the heart of the why, that deeper reason that's calling to them, once people get in touch with that, then I think that that really then energizes them. If they're really honest with themselves as to why they want to do this, then that, that it will encourage them to get over whatever fears. I'm afraid of a lot of things and I'm shy. I'm an introvert. And yet for whatever reason, I've tricked myself into putting that aside when I was growing up, if I wanted my mom to take me to a store, she would say, well, call them to see if they're open. And I said, I can't even pick up the phone to call the store. And yet somehow, and I also have Tourette syndrome. I was bullied uh, uh, quite a bit as a kid with my, for my twitches and my strange grunts and everything else. And I had all these things that were in my head that prevented me 
from dating, prevented me from speaking, from performing in front of live audiences. And for various reasons, I got through that. And it's a way to face my fears and to get out on stage, whether the stage is a physical stage or it's a blank sheet of paper or a screen. And it's a way to prove to myself each and every day that, no, I am capable of doing this. And the more you do that, you build on your own confidence. After a while, your body remembers what it felt like to create something. And even if it wasn't quote unquote successful, you did it. You said you're going to write a book and you did it. And if it didn't get published, okay, but that's just the stepping stone to the next one. Yeah, but also it doesn't mean anything. I mean, being published feels good, but writing the book and finishing it, that's the marathon. You can always edit. You can always rewrite. There's so many things you can do, but if you don't lay the bricks for the foundation, it's never going to be anything. And I think people have a fear of starting things. They always feel like, well, I'm going to fail at that. And so they begin to write better excuses than they do actual plan. Tourette syndrome is a serious thing. But you also were creating a narrative in addition to the challenge. You were creating the narrative of what people are thinking about. Part of it is a true narrative because you witness how people respond. But why they're doing that or what they're afraid of or how they see somebody different in your introversion or your shyness, is that why you spent so many hours doing art? Does the obstacle somehow become the answer to the riddle of your success? Because if you were the kid that was out playing kickball 24 hours a day, you might not have spent the same amount of time with the pad in front of you. That's a great question and something I've uh, pondered in my own head for a long time. Oliver Sacks, the great neurologist, had a theory that there was a connection between Tourette syndrome and creativity. And it's anecdotal, but Almost everyone I've ever met who has Tourette syndrome is creative in some way. They're a writer, artist, they're very athletic, interestingly enough. Jim Eisenreich, former baseball player for the Kansas City Royals, has Tourette syndrome. I do think that there's an element of the Tourette's that because your brain is telling you, you must do this, you must stretch your mouth, you must grunt, you must say inappropriate things. And so you have to talk your brain out of it by focusing in on other things. And whether I knew it or not, it was just sort of this instinctive thing that I realized when I was drawing or playing music, my dad had Tourette's syndrome, it's genetic. And when he was drumming, he had all the twitches. Neither of us knew at the time that he had Tourette's, but I would notice that he would stop twitching when he was so focused. So I don't know if just instinctively I picked up on that and I would lose myself in a drawing and would calm down. But also, I do think that if I were out doing other things, if I were perhaps more social and partying it up, I did a little bit of that, but not like you might think in high school or college. I lived a kind of a solitary life until I came out of my shell. And that's a great point. Like, well, maybe I wouldn't have stayed up all hours in my bedroom, literally filling sketchbook upon sketchbook upon sketchbook and writing songs very quietly and meekly so no one could hear me. And I, I, I think it, it's a blessing in disguise that I had it, actually. I say that to anyone who has any kind of obstacle, maybe this is an overused phrase, but it's your superpower. Whatever that obstacle is, to not only accept it and embrace it, but to let it energize you, whatever it is. Maybe it's an inspiration for your memoir. Maybe it's the inspiration for a song. 
move into it, it can help you actually. It might be tough. It might be hard as hell, but it can really maybe inform your creative work. And maybe that's the thing. Maybe that's the thing that people are afraid of too. They're afraid of going deep, but there are ways around that too. Maybe you write a fictional character. So there are ways around that, but it, that can sometimes be touchy for creatives, but I think that that's really important. And when you get to the heart of things, that's when true art happens. The bravest is when the vulnerability is something where you show your humanity, which is better than having that wall up and that firewall that protects you from getting hurt. It's exposing what we're all made of. The human condition is something we can relate to. And so when we're singing a song during a heartache or a breakup, it's because the singer has lived it in a way and expresses it in a way that allows us to go on that ride. And your daily routine, creatively, for all the years that you were cartooning, you had a deadline. A certain amount of days a week, you had to be creative and deliver something under the gun every day. Yeah, five, six days a week for over 30 years. Stephen Pressfield talks about showing up every day and your muse will show up. And I have continued that. I'm still drawing with support on Patreon. And I am rigid in saying that I will draw X number of cartoons per week, but I also make up fake deadlines for myself. I have to do it. And for example, my partner, romantic partner and professional partner, and I recently finished a screenplay. There's no deadline for that, but we made ourselves do it. And we even would set up meetings in the same house. Okay. Three o'clock Friday, we're going to meet to talk about this particular project. And you set up meetings for yourself even. You set deadlines. And I do that with learning French, really into learning languages. And I set deadlines for myself. I set deadlines for whatever project I have. Even if there's no reason to have a deadline, I show up every day. And that's something that I tell creatives. Show up each and every day. Because when you start showing up every day, then your muse will believe that you are serious about it and things will start to happen when you show up. You gotta just show up. But you say deadlines don't mean anything, but deadlines are the key. To me, a goal is a dream with a deadline. You have to meet that moment. Yep. And you mentioned the IRS on April 15th, but that's the only reason people get it done. The first thing people do when they have a wedding is they send out a hold the date card. And they've committed to something that now they get closer to the whole way. And so that means that facilitates having to pick catering, having to get a band, having to decide what to do. This is like producing a Broadway show. Right. And most people haven't done that. It is a lot of work. See, even with that wedding, they didn't have to set that date. They could have chosen a year. At some point, you have to pull the trigger and you have to make a deadline. That's what I'm saying. Okay, you have this dream to write a screenplay or a novel. And you're just like working at a little bit every day. Well, no, set that deadline. Send a save the date card to yourself. I love that because it is about giving yourself permission. For, for people who maybe aren't in the creative arts and want to do something, going and taking an improv class is not about being the funniest person. It's about taking the stage. It's about learning to be in character. It's all about learning to do that yes and where you're sharing information and learning from it. And it does help in other parts of life. It does help relax us and keep our fears because it's fun and it's harmless. And that comes in a lot of different ways. But I think those kinds of things, they transform us emotionally. And it's unbelievably fun. There are juggling clubs you can go to and they'll teach you how to juggle. It's just fun to surprise yourself with what you're capable of. 
Oh, absolutely. It keeps your brain fresh. I wanted to say something about, we're talking earlier about childhood and that we're all artists uh, to a certain degree. I've been to a lot of cartooning conventions and meetings. And when I was first starting out, I would go and I would meet some of my heroes, the cartoonists that I was following and worshiping as a kid, and I would meet them and they didn't seem any older than when I was a kid. And I've noticed over the years that a lot of cartoonists don't age. We're talking about astronauts earlier, and there's this thing about astronauts maybe not aging at the same rate. So I have this theory that astronauts and cartoonists are a lot lot alike. They don't age at the same rate. And I think this might be true for other creatives. I think that when you stay young at heart and you are truly tapped into that childlike wonderment and you're playful and you're joking, I do think that it keeps you feeling young and fresh. And I think that playing an instrument or learning a language, whatever it is, it gets the brain going in a new way. And, uh, you know, with the screenplay, I'd never written a screenplay before. My girlfriend had, but I didn't know what I was doing. And I, but I didn't worry about that part of it. And I probably too, all too often put the cart before the horse, but I've almost done that with everything. When I started Prairie Cats, the swing band, I didn't know how to read music and I still don't. I play by ear. But I knew that I wanted to start a swing band and I gathered musicians and I said, hey, I've written all these songs. I said, well, where are your charts? I said, well, I don't have any. I'm going to need someone to write those out. So I did. And because they were mostly music teachers. And then one day, one of the band members, we mostly did original stuff, stuff that I wrote. Somebody brought a cover song and they handed cheat music out. And I thought, okay, how can I in the next two minutes learn to read music? And I'm so foolish, Bad. I really thought, I, maybe I could do this. And I thought, no, I, I can't. Okay, I can't do that. And I had to admit that I don't know how to read music. And jaws were dropped because we'd already been in the band and played gigs for a half a year. But I just figured out a way around it because that's just how my brain works. Whether it's writing a screenplay or a book, I'm not saying that to toot my own horn or to brag. My point is, get there how you need to get there. And yes, if you need to go take classes and that's the way you do it, that's awesome. If that's what works for you, if going a different route works for you, then do it. But the point is, you can do it even if you've never done it before. Yeah, I say move towards the epicenter of your interest. Whether that's move to the pad and doodle to do art or go to an arts fair. If you're thinking paint, then go buy paints and a paintbrush. Move towards the thing. What a lot of people do is they think about it for so long They say, I've got this story in my head, and one day I'm going to write a screenplay. One day starts today. You can literally put in, fade in, and start to write. And there's no harm in any of it. It's like go to the community pool and splash water for a little while and eventually go off the diving board. But it's no fun to think about that. It's kind of like, I'm going to be the greatest cliff diver of all time at my desk. No, you have to go jump off the cliff. And to me, it's more painful to not do the thing. That to me causes more suffering. And you mentioned splashing around at the pool or whatever. Well, okay, do the same thing. Like if you don't know how to write or draw or whatever, literally just open up your laptop and just start moving your fingers on there. At some point, you'll get tired of doing that. And you'll say, okay, maybe I need to actually write one word. Well, then just that day, write one, the fade in, just write fade in. And that's a valuable thing, actually. It's not just some BS thing you say, write fade in and come back to it the next day and write two more words and then build on that. 
Well, nobody writes a novel, right? They write a page and a scene. There's an old adage that your destination that you're driving to, you only have to see as far as the headlights and you can make the whole trip that way. So that means a page at a time, a scene at a time, a chapter at a time, and eventually you will have that book. I remember you having cartoon books from the days of you doing Husker football <laughs> cartoons from yeah. college, and eventually they become a compilation, which becomes a book. But you probably didn't think that when you were drawing the first couple of cartoons about the Nebraska Cornhuskers. No, you just start doing it. And then if you do it every day or most days, when I first landed my job at the newspaper, I had worked hard to get that job for about nine years of trial and error. And they kept saying, hey, kid, you're not ready. You're not ready. You're not ready. And for a variety of reasons, I, I kept going and landed the job. So I'd wanted this thing since I was a kid, really, and then really working at it for nine years. And I get the job. And honest to God, day one, I thought, oh, crap. Now I have to do this every day. And I talked to my editor about it because everybody has one or two editorial cartoons in them, but how about one every single day for the next three decades? And he just said the old adage, one day at a time, that is literally all you have to do. I have to fill this rectangle of blank space just once a day. Okay. Okay. It's a manageable I'm biting this off. I did something for the newspaper, something like 12,000 cartoons. I don't have to produce all of those today. I'm impatient. I would have liked to, but just this one. And then the next day, okay, do it again. And then eventually over time, you realize whether that's writing that book, writing that scene or that page. Okay, well, you write a page every day for three months and suddenly you have half a novel or a third of a novel. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, four months later, you have a movie. Now, I can't sign off without asking about you being struck by lightning. I'm sure you've had to talk about it many times, <laughs> but it's a lottery win coming from the sky. <laughs> the raw lottery. <laughs> but people often say that thing. Oh, yeah. It, like that's going to happen. Like I'm going to be struck by lightning. But you have been struck by lightning. At what age did it happen? And was there a change that impacts you yet today? I know that's a weird leap. But I just wonder, as unusual as the Tourette syndrome and the other things are, you've got your merit badge for being struck by lightning. <laughs> so I'm going to, I could tell you about that. It's interesting you bring up the Tourette's in this context, because I was actually not diagnosed with Tourette's until my twenties, when I actually saw Jim Eisenreich, the former Royals player on a PSA talking about Tourette's. And I thought, oh, I think that's what I have. And I went and got a di diagnosis and I went and told my dad that I had Tourette's and that he probably did too. And he grew up during the Great Depression. He said, hey, I was poor growing up. We couldn't afford syndromes. That's related <laughs> to the other part of your right. question, because my dad, even though I was twitching as a kid, as he was, he always said, well, we just have nervous habits. And he somehow tried to blame the lightning strike because it happened when I was 17. He tried to blame the lightning strike on my having Tourette's. And I said, dad, there's no connection. I had this before. I was 17 years old. I growing up in South Omaha in a small working class neighborhood. Oldest of five, and the house is filled with old, broken TVs and stacks of drums. That's a whole other story. So I was always looking for ways to get out. If I wasn't losing myself in my sketch pad, I was going outside and I became enamored, not just with space and gazing at the stars, but with bad storms. And it was a Saturday night. I had long, wavy, wispy hair that was damp from my shower. I just showered. I'm barefoot. I'm standing in the front lawn as a storm approaches. Pretty much 
all the things you don't want to do when there's a, a Nebraska thunderstorm approaching. And my dad stepped out from the front porch a couple of times, said, kid, you better get in here. The storm coming. He had this big, deep voice. And I said, no, nah, I'll be all right. Because, hey, man, I'm watching Mother Nature's light show or whatever. And moments later, there was the loudest sound I've ever heard. It sounded like someone put a gun in my head and blew my head off. At the same time, I could see this white ball of light and all of these ultraviolet colors shooting out from this white ball of light. Now, I don't know how much of that was my own brain circuitry going haywire, how much of that was the flash of the lightning. Uh, my brother actually was just uh, telling me this recently, and he was recounting that the gutter of the house had been hit. And so we've always been trying to piece together, did it come up to the ground, did it hit the tree? So anyhow, uh, I was knocked to the ground. I was having a near-death experience. There was no doubt in my mind that I was dying. I was very calm, but I couldn't move. And I remember my dying wish was to get inside my parents' house to die on the floor before the full storm. This is early in the storm when the lightning hit. And I just wanted to get inside. I couldn't move. Finally, it was sort of like the, the drawing of evolution, the fish to the standing up and finally walking. It felt like it was hours. It was just a couple of minutes or a couple of seconds. But nobody saw you out there. You got yourself up and got in. I got myself up to the front door, but my brain was so scrambled. I couldn't understand what the door handle meant. I knew that it was significant and symbolic, but I didn't know what it was. At that point, my parents grabbed me. I still can't speak. My mom's screaming. My dad is like slapping me because I had turned gray. And my mom is saying, we need to get him to the hospital. We need to get him to the hospital. And my dad said, no. And he said, I'm, I need to give him some of my medicine. So I still can't speak. They take me to the couch. My siblings are standing there staring at me. I'm probably drooling or not making sense. My dad gives me a shot of his medicine, which was my first shot at age 17 of Jack Daniels. This is his lightning strike medicine? His one and done lightning strike medicine. <laughs> but by the way, it worked for him. He never got hit by lightning, did he? It was a preventative medicine for him. Yes, preventative. Exactly. And well, I don't drink Jack Daniels now, but maybe that one shot got me through it. But I have occasionally had some bouts of atrial fibrillation, which possibly came from that. So, but other than that, nothing else that other than my bizarre behavior. But Right. I am so grateful that you took the time today to share with me. We didn't really get into your music with the Prairie Cats too much and some so many other things, but people can find out more about you at jeffreykaterba.com. And that's a good place they can subscribe to your Patreon and catch up with all the upcoming cartoons that you have. I love the way you see the world from electrocution to syndication. We'll just follow you on this journey. And thank you just so much for continuing to be a great example of what it means to be an artist in the world. Oh, Pat, thank you so much. I'm just honored to do this and I've been a longtime fan. So thank you so very much for the opportunity. All right. Be well, friend. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing and crafty co-producing by Tucker Hazel. The original music theme was created and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Diane Johansson, Tony Deo, and Tanner Dykstra. Please feel free to dash off a review on social media to help grow this creative community. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right, dot fun, as in dot was so fun.
Bye for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage.